0: This is OTB Sports Radio, Thursday Night Football with John Giles. When you lose a big match like that, you have to suck that up. Mm. But to go into a dressing room that you're celebrating to a disrespectful, I mean, who is Mourinho to talk about disrespect? The best analysis of all the week's football from Ireland's number one football man. was a social media star right he appeals to the young people now he does his dance he has his hair and all that that's all he's worrying about in my opinion are you about being a great player Nate. John Giles every
1: Thursday at 7.30pm on OTB Sports Radio live 24-7
0: on the Go Loud app the OTB Podcast Network OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood
1: with Vodafone official sponsors of the Irish rugby team team of us Everyone in. All right, you're very welcome along to episode three of Keith Wood's State of the Union. We're looking at the Southern Hemisphere this week, and I'm delighted to say we've got Michael Checker and Andrew Mertens with us. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome from your respective lockdowns. Um, Keith, the, the, the Southern Hemisphere is uh, something that we really need to concentrate on for this week because we're very interested in the relationship between the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere, and particularly maybe some of the aspects of change that are coming in the Southern Hemisphere that maybe we should look at ourselves as well.
2: Yeah, I do. Look, I think some of the changes that have happened over the, the the last two decades, some of them really worked, some of them haven't, and some of the tinkering that happens with really good competitions has ultimately impacted on them. And we've seen that, I think, in the in Super Rugby when it was Super Ten, Super Twelve, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, but suddenly it became this geographical uh, behemoth. It stretched everywhere, and there's a, an element of disconnect that happens within that. So, uh, and for the boys' benefit, we've we've used this podcast just to try and have a little cursory glance over um, a, <clears throat> a proper reset for the game that COVID has given us because, um, you know, there was change, everybody was struggling, everybody was under pressure uh, for the last number of years, but there has never been a chance or an opportunity to stop and look and uh, take stock of where we are Um, And we're looking at the game struggling and struggling very heavily. And in the last couple of weeks, even, um, the the chance to try and get back to play has just caused more problems, more issues. Um, uh, The finances of all the the countries, the clubs, um, the unions are all beginning to kind of struggle a little bit more. So I think everybody's nervous and we're trying to have a little look uh, globally, if we can, it's what, ha- what happened in Ireland, what happened in the UK, in France, in Europe, uh, how much that impacts on the Southern Hemisphere teams, but also how much of an impact we are having on drawing so many of the players from the Southern Hemisphere, and whether that has been detrimental down there as well. So I think that's a, a, a snapshot of, of where our conversation is going.
1: Uh, Michael, maybe we'll start with you and, and the situation in Australia. Um, week to week, it's hard to know who is actually actively in charge. Is there a guiding philosophy at the moment about where the future of Australian Rugby is going?
3: Uh, I don't think there is a guiding philosophy or direction around, uh, you know, our our end game, around uh, the two sides of the business. Okay. So the business of business and then the business of sport. Uh, It's a little bit different, two bottom lines, you know, financial bottom line on one side, an emotional bottom line on the other because and they don't often and always run parallel because um, teams may invest a lot in their um, you know uh, uh, efforts and may not get those rewards at the uh, in the competition side of things but i think we've um our issue here has been about how we measure i, I believe obviously in some my humble opinion that how we measure success um of the business and i think that um the success of the game traditionally was measured by participants right now that may not seem like a very business type of thing to do but those same participants are your customers at the end of the day and i think now what we've done is we've we've started to focus too much on revenue tv deals uh uh, ticket sales etc which are extremely important but they're much easier to do And achieve good outcomes there and consequence of good outcomes there when you have a strong participant base because those same um, participants, not all of them will end up in the elite level and they'll all become fervent spectators, fervent fans, or part time fans according to the different levels of of, um, sport we have. And Super Rugby has been a consequence of that because we've got bigger and bigger and bigger because we wanted. More TV money, more TV money, more TV money. The fundamentals of the game, of the business, have, like any business here, uh, aren't there because we don't have any assets, no stadia, uh, we don't own any competitions, really. Uh, our local club competitions have even been disseminated amongst the different regional or political, uh, you know, state bodies or suburban bodies, etc. So the governing body has no assets. Now, players could be considered as an asset, but they're also a heavy cost as well. And the with no transfer fees, players aren't really an asset. So we're running a business with no assets. And we have been, we had, I know I'm talking a lot, but the reality is that we've had Super Rugby. It's been losing money for all the clubs hand over foot, and we've maintained our presence in that, in that tournament.
2: Um, that expansion of Super Rugby has that led to some of this decline, or has there been has it been mismanaged?
3: Uh, I think that the focus on the international game is a unique selling point for rugby, and I don't think that it should be ignored at all. In fact, I think that it's a huge sell compared to for us competing against league and AFL. The international part of our game is extremely valuable. Uh, at the top end, but you've also got to have a strong functioning um, next tier because <clears throat> not only is that your supporter base, but even for the development of players, this is not a business side of things, yes, it's competition you play against all these other teams that you're going to play against eventually, but the idea of um, playing Leinster Munster, which you have played in many times, will in front of a packed house with huge intensity and such a prepare and a a sport that's followed prepares players better Uh, going to a test match where you've only got a three quarter full stadium can almost be or a half full stadium can almost be a disadvantage to the home team because you're quite deflated when you go out there and therefore you know participation and our connection to participation is key it's not just oh yeah grassroots and I get that whole thing but if we're authentic in the way we deliver the, the the game as a whole to our participants, then they will be there to support us. They'll be there to buy tickets, to buy merchandise, to wave the flag, to go on tour for travel, uh, all the things that d- derive different revenue streams. And then with the international game, which will be our, our profit driver, we prioritise where we put that money into the non-profitable sides of the game, which will then grow um, our participation and volunteer network and all the people who love the game. But I think the expansion side of things is important, but it needs to be and and is is excellent to have and does bring in a great revenue stream, but it has to be underpinned by a strong participation and uh, involvement rate by people in the game. Uh, just before we go
2: on to Andrew, I just wanted to ask one last bit on pay per view TV or subscription TV. And the, uh, part of the view in England was that cricket pretty much fell off um, the face of the earth for participation uh, once it went to sky. Did that, did that happen with, with rugby union in Australia?
3: Yeah, I think so. And, and I'll say that uh, with a maximum respect to Fox. They've been an unbelievably great supporter of the game over many years. You know, the, the, from right at the top News Corp owners, they've invested millions and millions of dollars into the game. And we, so I, you don't want to be disrespectful to that, but if you look here at rugby league, they've been able to find the balance between a broadcast. Deal that allows them to be paid TV and free to wear so that kids can have heroes. I would say that during my tenure in, in the Wallabies, I would have had younger players coming through school, uh, 14s and 15s, I would ask to come and bring down the training that they want to try to entice to rugby. And they literally wouldn't know any of the players, bar the ones who would come from rugby league Curtis is Israel Falau. Uh, you know, guys who have been there and they've seen on free to air TV, because I think here in Australia it could be, and I might be wrong here, I can't say exactly 28 to 30 percent, I think it's about 28 percent of the population have paid TV. So there's a whole range of people that aren't seeing uh, the product, and that's for the development of the game as well. So, some type of strong balance, and you're going to find, I think, in the next few days that the NRL again to announce a mega deal. Um, Long term with Fox, and um, and uh, and also in a in more shorter medium term deal with Channel Nine, that which is a free to wear broadcast, that allows them to give an excellent coverage, and therefore um, have more and more people um, participating in one way or another, whether it's at games as junior rugby, uh, junior rugby league, or or on TV, and, and therefore fans. So there is a, a way to do it. Um, I think we go for the we probably go for the easy money sometimes you know what I mean and and it's I understand why often but uh, the, these these decisions are always about risk assessment inside of the boardroom and um, you've got to make sure that the calculations are very, very clear when it comes to the decision you make because they're pivotal decisions inside any game.
1: Andrew, what's the scenario like at moment in New Zealand, pardon me, obviously participation is never going to be an issue, it's it's such a, a part of the culture, but it seems as if the finances aren't quite as uh, rudely healthy as they should be, given the playing base that they have in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a complicated issue. Um, part, part of the complication for rugby, I guess, is it's a global sport without really global numbers, um, not compared to soccer or, or to football, you know. So, you know, New Zealand's, every country's got different um, advantages and, and weaknesses. You know, New Zealand's advantage has got a great brand. Um, in terms of proportion of the population, it's got the lion's share of, of resources of the of kids coming through and playing the sport. It's got the support what it doesn't have is it doesn't have um, a big economy. You know, we, we're not a, a big country uh, in terms of, of our economy. We don't wield a lot of political power. Um, you know, even with a really, really good brand as the All Blacks, we don't wield the power, not that I think we should either, but we don't wield the power in world rugby. So our challenges are a little bit different. We've got good domestic strength in our competition, but we can't compete with... You know, um, players getting offered big contracts overseas. So that's traditionally been our challenge, of course. So it's it's a really complicated issue. Australia's different. Australia's got a, um, you know, a much stronger overall economy, where the rugby has got its share of that. Obviously, it doesn't, but it's got competing local sports, AFL and, and NRL football now as well. So it's a really different environment over here, and part of the issue in Australia as well, where I'm living in Sydney. Um, much as I keep connections obviously in New Zealand is that it's, it's a class game to a large extent in Australia so whereas everyone in New Zealand plays it over here it's much more seen as the private school sport and as such it, it's really hard for it to get a following outside of its its player base, its traditional player base which is the, the private schools in, in Sydney and in Brisbane You know, so as Chek said, giving people access to the sport on TV you don't get a lot of casual watches uh, in Australia, of rugby. You're, and and such is the nature over here as well. It's quite fractious where you've got people who are really dyed in the wall club supporters. They tend not to be the ones who go and watch the Waratahs, for example. And the people who do go and watch the Waratahs locally here may not, uh, are probably unlikely to be the people who go and support their club fervently. So you've got a real kind of a, a divide in the support base here as well. And so, you know, the country's, it's pretty complicated. New Zealand's going to benefit, I think ultimately from a revamped super rugby. I think Australia will too. I've said for quite a while now that I think the competition, while it's expanded, it hasn't expanded in a, in a, in a sort of a consistent or a logical way that's scalable. It's just added a couple of teams here and there, you know, went to 14, went to 15, then it went to 18, dropped back down. Cause it was, that was crazy. It's a wonder they haven't tried a prime number yet. For, for you, Woody, prime number would be something like a 17 or a 13, <laughs> mate, you know, divisible only by one in itself. Thank you. Um, but it, it hasn't, it, it's still the hindrance in Super Rugby is there are games in Argentina now, which is, you know, time zone is not great for New Zealand and Australia. Same with South Africa. Not many people are watching even their own teams play at three in the morning coming out of South Africa. So it's nothing against South Africa, but I think the competition would be much better, more localized into one time zone, expanding into Asia. That's where Australia can use, a, I guess, a bit more of an economic footprint into Asia and New Zealand would benefit from that. I think it's been crazy somehow allowing Japan to slip out of the the, the Sanzar competition. But if it means that Aussie and, and New Zealand and the islands and, and Asia get in together, then I think it could work well and the logical place for South Africa, I think, to expand. Um, would be places like Dubai or, you know, go into the same time zone and hit Barcelona, put a team there, you know, that sort of thing. Um, when i said, I've said constantly for the last sort of five years, I think that the competition in Super Rugby needs to change and needs to wipe out those big divides in terms of the time zone. Um, South Africans jump up and down and say, oh, you hate South Africa? Well, no, I don't, other than the fact you beat me in 95 in the World Cup final, saying that I did more than my fair share for the Springboks that day anyway. But um, I don't hate South Africa at all. But what I'm concerned about is the rugby product. And I, I think that's suffering at the moment through the, the structure of Super Rugby. And I think one of the uh, benefits of this, this COVID, like in a lot of industries and, and business as well, it has actually reset. Like Czech said, I think right at the start, it's given everyone, or maybe Woody, it's given everyone a, a reset point to reevaluate and say, okay, how do we go forward now in, a, in an efficient way and a really logical way and make the most of, of of what we have as a product.
2: I think Czech uh, touched on a point uh, uh, earlier on about the fact that as unions, the international game is the driver of nearly all the finance. The vast bulk of the money that comes into the game and out of the game comes through the international game. Um, Super rugby ended up being trans- hemisphere you know and uh, in terms of player welfare in terms of trying to play on the high veldt one week or argentina two weeks later i mean the amount of flights that have to go in there and especially with, with what's happening now with covid in terms of of how difficult flying is going to be will part of that reset mean that new zealand will end up having their own
0: competition or would there be a trans-tasman competition from my um, point of view, I can't speak for Czech. I'd love to see a, a, a trans the competition in this time zone. I don't know about you in terms of particularly your experience with coaching the Waratahs. How you found those challenges travelling all around the world? Good for your air points. Hmm.
3: No, I think um, I don't think the um, all teams are ham- hampered the same way by the travel. So I think that's that's the, I don't think that's a real issue. Um, But the economics, this is where I fell out a fair bit with Australian rugby, you know. I mean, it would have been a few years ago when they were doing the last TV, uh, the next sort of arrangement of what super rugby was going to look like. I was adamant about changing towards Trans-Tasman and Japan as well because, number one, because we need to rebuild the supporter base, you've got to think that the Waratahs could play one game at home be away for five weeks, get a couple of games at home, then have a break in June, which is no longer there. Now you're running an events company basically if you're one of these teams in the in the management section of one of these teams that aren't in the high performance area. So you've got eight one year, maybe seven in another, the way the competition is structured now, home games, uh, the, the economics just don't match up. And then to keep the consistency of viewing, um, Games, if you go wake up in Ireland, you're watching super rugby all morning, then you're watching some rugby in South Africa in the afternoon, but then you're watching um, your own competition and the English and French all night, you've got non stop rugby from the morning to the evening. Here, uh, you've got the odd game punctuated in amongst rugby league and AFL games, which have their own channel basically on, on the pay TV provider. And the ability to build some continuity of fandom and um, uh, and following and support and sponsorship loyalty and, uh, and and return on investment for sponsors as well, which is what you want to do, is it's nearly impossible. And you to break even in a Super Rugby team, you have to have a home final, at least one, if not two. Right, that's based on the sort of Australian model. And the, logist, the, the, the logical situation is that only one's going to get a home final. That's only because the competition forces it to be there. So you've got four other teams previously and now three that are guaranteed to lose money. And that, I, I don't understand how they can sustain that model. I just I don't know how they've just, I been able to understand when I ask those questions in the, the, the rooms why we're keeping that model as much as it's great it is a it's a great competition to play in etc but it's not sustainable and so it's been proven before covid 19 situation turned out it's it's clearly proven because players were losing players at the rate of knots um, the ability to keep our younger players out of the hands of um, uh, of NRL as well is very difficult because i think there's probably you know 10 or nine top-line players in RL that are all coming out of rugby schools. Yes, some of them were sent there from league to be put there for scholarships and stuff like that. But still, you've got them there in your hands. You can drive them. But we, we've we just played along because we've had the... Uh, and, and it's not easy to give up that, that nice lollipop, you know what I mean, big, that big TV money. But now uh, it remains to be seen whether we'll be able to access those types of funds... Um, from the TV deal, and um, therefore down here now, there's a lot of players on the move. Like there's a lot of noise coming out of Europe about a lot of our players here who um, obviously got a lot of uncertainty, and therefore trying to you know, get some certainty by by um, looking elsewhere.
2: Uh, what's the club game like underneath the provincial setup?
3: Yeah, look, I I. I Think the club game is a is I, I might be a little bit biased here because I come from that era, you know, too. So, I? Uh, But I think that the club game is an is is an essential part. It's the link between the professional game and the um, and the amateur game through mm. the people who are crossing over through it because players will cross through there. It's the only place players will really cross through to come and cross over between the amateur and the professional game. There's such a huge supporter base. When I say supporter base, maybe not turning up for massive crowds or anything like that, but volunteers, families of players, you know, clubs who have got five and six grades turning up to play on the same day, three or four Colts teams, and we've paid zero respect to it. It's been handed off from team to team. I think they from um, organization to organization to run, Rugby Australia is not even in charge of the Sydney or Brisbane competitions for that matter. Um, and, and, in fact, I'm pretty sure that we had to pay someone to cover it and then eventually those rights got taken. I think they've only just had to buy those rights back this year. The club game is, I think, when I talk about success being participation, I think it's instrumental for the core values of the game, we make up all these, you know, plans with. Oh, these are the values of rugby. The values of rugby in Australia are right there in club, in clubland. Guys who are working each day, just like it happened. I'm not saying, and and the the opportunity that one of those guys is going to get picked out and be playing professional rugby and and make the dream happen, and his whole family's going to go there and it's going to be a great day. That that's gone now. Where we, I, like I. I it was a great opportunity this year, I feel, that they could have put aside the state teams and just put all the players back into their clubs and done a, club, a modified club rugby version, um, Sydney, Brisbane, whoever else, and then play a sort of national finals at the end. It's going to be a bit of a, a ride off no matter what. It's not going to be super rugby in itself. It's just going to be content for content's sake um, to try and access some money from the from the broadcaster and also to prepare players for test rugby, which will hopefully take place later on in the year. But um, I feel like um, we we need to look at the things, uh, we need to prioritise certain things that we know could be almost like lost leaders for us so that um, our stadia will be full, our team will be very strongly supported um, no matter where it goes uh, and plays in Australia. And, uh, and that it's almost like a it's the connection point to our fan base.
1: That that, that community based, <clears throat> pardon me, that community based competition might have been a, a good way to give a rebirth to that. Uh, one thing that I'm I'm interested in: who actually owns the Super Rugby franchises? Who's sitting and presiding over this loss-making team?
3: Uh, so the rug in Australia. I don't know how it is in New Zealand. In Australia, the the governance can be a little bit complex. So Rugby Australia is an entity that then is made up of members from the different state unions, okay? So in New South Wales, New South Wales Rugby Union owned the licence to the Waratahs. They could choose to privatise that if someone wanted to take that licence on for a certain fee. In fact, it was licensed out to Waratahs Rugby for a fee which they then – you know, it was all the same people, but they sort of divided that late like, professional game from community game. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, the losses all come back to the Rugby Australia. All the money is coming. So the money comes from the different revenue streams. The out now out pay TV deal, which is linked um, into the collective bargaining agreement of players, is uh, funneled through Rugby Australia, and an X amount goes to each province. So that they can for to use for um, player payments up to a certain point, and then certain international players will get topped up from the home from the union, from the national union, and then they'll also get a certain amount of money from Rugby Australia for development of the game in the state, Um, and the but when when it all comes back to it, if I turn up with a three million dollar loss. It's RA who have to bail me out, and that's why, even though it might be two million from this team and two million from that team and two million from another team, it ends up being six to eight million for Open Australia every year. In one way or another, no matter how
0: you spin it.
1: How does it work in New Zealand? Who owns those teams?
0: Uh, well, I better be careful what I say because I'm I'm fairly ignorant of, <laughs> um, of the actual setup. I'm pretty sure it's a, a partially privatised model over there where the New Zealand Union does have a um, an equity stake in the five super rugby teams. There might be one which is completely privately owned, but at the end of the day in New Zealand, um, it's always been the way that it's been very centralised. So the New Zealand Rugby Union does hold the cards. Um, the way the sport has developed in New Zealand with a small population, it's just made sense. It's It's been compelling for it to be centralised. There haven't been You know there are regional there are parochialisms in terms of on the field, but off the field it's always been from the amateur era right through. In fact, the amateur era built that. It's about the game and it's about the national body and it's about the All Blacks essentially. So everyone falls in behind that, and that's always been the way. Contract situation is I think still that the New Zealand Rugby Union um, is has the main liability in terms of player contracts and then they can sign individual super rugby contracts to top that up but it's still new zealand rugby union holding the cards and and it does work well for new zealand um you know it's it's limiting i guess in some other ways but uh, but it works for us in, in terms of the context that we're operating in a small population but i mean i i can't see rugby in australia being able to flourish and i don't think rugby new zealand is going to be able to you know develop as much as maybe we're developing nations without a strong world body, a strong world focus. And, you know, I think, firstly, we've all got to recognise in the rugby world that the economies that do hold the cards there in world rugby are England and France. Uh, they, they've got the money, they have got the political power. So that's we've, we've actually got to recognise that. But we, I think those two powers particularly have to think outside of their own interests. I mean, it, you know, the English Premiership stands alone, can stand alone. If there was no other contact, the English Premiership would go well. It's a good competition, good system with feeder clubs and the different levels of play, whether regionally or, or nationally. France is the same. I mean, they've got 30 fully professional teams throughout their top two divisions. You know, they could they could operate in their own right. I think they need to take on the responsibility or, or have it told to them that if we really want to make this a world game, then we have to have a world structure and that opportunity that World Rugby missed a couple of years back when it tried to talk to the Six Nations about maybe moving the tournament, they said no and it all sort of fell through. But I think somewhere we've got to sit down and go, okay, what's best for the game? If the Six Nations is best played then, then okay, Southern Hemisphere Nations, you need to get in and play your internationals at the same time. So throughout the world, we've got, whether it's one or two or whatever windows, where international rugby is being played and then the lower levels can flourish outside of that because internationals at the moment are dictating when Super Rugby gets played down here. That's dictating when any other provincial competitions get played and that in turn affects the club games and they don't get access yet. People don't see the Wallabies playing for Randwick anymore. They might this year if it gets started, of course, which would be nice, but um, they, they don't get to see that. And so I think when World Rugby can actually have the power with obviously got to have buy-in from England and France predominantly they need to construct a world structure that is scalable so if you say okay in, in this time frame where Australia and New Zealand are playing and Japan plays and the islands or whatever that this is a structure that can be built out eventually over time what do we want the game to look like in 15 to 20 years because at the moment we're still just adding bits to it I'm curious Woody from your perspective how that whether you think the Pro 14 could exist completely standalone if it wasn't for contact with England and France in terms of the European Cups and stuff like that? How, do, how does that go from a, a revenue generation perspective?
2: Yeah, I think it, it makes it into, I think we're kind of circling around uh, a thing that we've circled around for a few weeks, actually. So I, I don't think the Pro 14 stands on its own at all. I, I, I don't think it has um, fully worked as a competition. And actually, what it tried to do was mirror what Super Rugby has done, which is to have South African teams and to have um, Italian teams, which you can understand because it's the Six Nations, but actually geographically, it just makes things a little bit awkward, and um, they haven't had any success within the the competition. So I don't know that that fits fully well. Um, For me, the idea of World Rugby's uh, debate a couple of years ago about a global season, I think we, we we try and put everything that we already have pre-existing and we try and then work a season around it and I think that's too awkward and too uncomfortable. We may well have too many competitions. So because of that, we have players playing too many, you have no um, downtime, you have no potential downtime, um, you have to have larger squads, they're more expensive, you have longer levels of travel. Um, and uh when in the northern hemisphere particularly michael they play an awful lot more as you know they play an awful lot more than they do in the southern hemisphere and so that travel does exact a toll on on players um if the european competition became a sort of knockout competition that wasn't six or eight weekends or ten weekends that are suddenly taken up that it is only for the teams that get to the end or if um if super rugby was something similar on the back of national competitions or if you had a british and irish league um instead of the premiership and the pro 14 and you you know amalgamated some of those i think you free up another five or six weekends a year and i think that actually makes it more sustainable but it's trying to shoehorn different competitions um uh different, um, different vested interests into it. And I don't know necessarily that world rugby spent a huge amount of time talking to the premiership and to the French. They tend to dictate to them. They don't take that very well, to be honest. So I I, I like, I do think that there is a potential to be done there. But for me, it has to be that professional rugby is under one group in, uh, in England and under one group in France. If you have the premiership fighting with the ORFU all the time, you're going to get vested interest and that needs to be combined somehow. And actually, if that happens, I also think it stops some of the player drain from some of the other countries from, from the southern hemisphere because more things are aligned. If that is the case, it isn't just whether the club wins, it is also whether England wins.
1: Uh, Michael, I'm interested in, in what you think of the arrival of CBC onto the scene and the money that they're pumping in. Like Andrew makes the point about these very strong leagues in England and France, but if it wasn't for the CBC money, most of the teams in the premiership in England would technically have recorded a loss last year. I think only one of them would have ended up being able to stand alone as at break-even or making a profit. So the league does require investment, and with the money coming in, you can see that the power dynamic between the league and the RFU is only going to continue to be contentious
3: yes um, the CBC investment into Formula 1 I totally understood you know and it was a very successful operation for them in the end after I think they sold out to Liberty in the end it rugby, I'm gathering that their investment into, and I wouldn't have no idea, but I'm gathering their investment into the premiership is a stepping stone towards investing into the international game where they can truly maximise the skill set that they bring to to the business of sport around the maximising the, the, the commercialisation of the product. Um, in regards to teams... Uh, Recording losses, it's it's different, and I've worked in both of these environments, right? So the the privately owned um, outfit, as opposed to the federation owned outfit, are two totally different animals. Now, I think in France they they have worked out in the way that um, at the end of a season they have a a financial body that overlooks all the teams. If Team X records a ten million dollar loss. Uh, on their books, then Team X's owner has to put that $10 million in before they are given the permission to play in that same league again the next season. They can be relegated financially at the end of any year if they don't make their books balanced. Now, if a private owner is wanting to invest that type of money, then I say, go for it. The more money you can have in the game from, from privateers, I don't see what the issue is at all. Um, but we try to play in this halfway house of... Uh, You know, well, we want to bring in private money, but we want to then put salary caps, and we want we want to regulate wealthy owners that are coming into the game. And I think that 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 just doesn't make sense to me. It's it's yes, we want investment, but yeah, now you invest on our terms, and it usually is a control play of some sort by the by the people who run the leagues, so the owners don't end up you know taking over, I suppose. But at the end of the day, the owners of clubs own should own the league because it's their their bodies on the line you know when it comes down to that now loss making in federation owned businesses is different because federation owned federation owned teams are genuine generally and if we you know i'm trying to think of them all now in my head they're generally all tailored towards the success of the national team so in ireland um, Irish rugby will tell Leinster you can play these guys for these games, you can't play them for these, I don't know the ins and outs of it all now but yeah. I'm sure Keith will know, you, you guys know a bit and they're tailoring that <clears throat> and at the other end of that they're giving them more resources to bring in players and they put them into a competition that can that can sort of handle that You know, they're, they're, they're in a competition on a regular basis that can handle that type of drain back and forward. So um, they're the assets of the union will generally decide how they maneuver these things and most successful sporting teams are going to have some for the balance sheet I should say going to have some type of significant asset profile so owning of stadia, um, owning of other revenue streams uh, that may not even be related to rugby you know what I mean so there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot that you can do when you've got the arena and the facility around, you know, different revenue streams. So the the actual um, differences in, you know, the profit and loss end at the end of the year, I think you can ride that out as long as there's a standard that needs to be met and say, well, you need to fill that hole every year before you can pick up and run again the next year. I think that's, that's pretty standard fare, I'd say.
1: Andrew, you seem pretty pessimistic about the future of Australian rugby.
0: Um, well, no, no, I don't know if I am pessimistic. I just I don't think it probably could go any worse. Um, but I think it's it's largely because just the, the the stakeholders of the sport are all on different pages, and there are so many different pages. Um, and I think, like with anything, coming together and finding some sort of a compromise in a positive sense, rather than a negative. You know, rather than um, you know, compromise being nothing good at all Um, i think a compromise in world rugby as well as australia the australian context is coming to the table thinking i'm actually prepared to to concede a little bit i'm actually prepared to think of what's better broadly that we might all benefit from this sport rather than just my little vested interest here Um, you know so when you when you sit down thinking about world rugby what would we like to see what's been good for rugby as you said internationals have been a huge part of that and tours have been a big part of that. Now, I'm not saying I want to see a tour every year for every team. But when you look at the fervor that the Lions brings out in the host country as well as people coming across, I think there's still a significant role to play for tours. Now, whether that's when the Lions go to South Africa next year, that New Zealand and Australia, one tour is the other. I mean, these days you can take two entirely different teams. You know One team to play the Saturday games one entirely different team touring people aren't going to know the difference but the all blacks go up and play in tamworth and down at albury or Moree or i'm trying to think of a few other towns bathurst toowoomba you know i think there's a room for tour there but we need to have a window for those opportunities to do that northern and southern hemisphere as well so we need to sit down and say okay firstly we want to have tours we want to have availability of international windows Secondly, what happens under that? We need to have regional competitions. We can't afford to have a Super Rugby. I mean, you said before the geographical challenges would of, of going across to Italy. Now you consider if you were playing in the Pro 14, had to go and play in Chicago, and then you know come back home play another game, and then go off and play in Singapore. So that's the Super Rugby challenges as well. So I think developing a structure worldwide that allows you to have conferences in the same time zone. Now in the European and South African time zone at the moment you, you, you might be able to get together six or seven conferences in New Zealand in the Asian time zone you might only have one at the moment you certainly only have one in the Americas but I think that's the kind of structure and format that, that we sort of need and then under that looking at how we, how we foster the level below that as well um, so I mean it's easy for me to say um, just get a few people around the table and get them all willing to concede a little bit but I think that's what we need to look at and go, where do we see rugby being in 15, 20 years, if we consider it a global sport? We need to put a World Cup in the United States. That's, that's the reality of it. Look how successful it was in, in Japan, fantastic. We've got to get to the United States. But how do we structure this so we can actually scale the game within that framework? Uh,
2: and yet, in the midst of all that, the two guys who were going for Chairman of World Rugby both said that they wanted to make the game simpler and larger. You know, they wanted to bring it to absolutely everywhere, but that becomes very, very difficult when the the key components, the key countries, are suffering at this stage.
3: But I think um, we, we're well, one thing I hear like we're talking about a lot of different ideas and etc. By nature and by demographic, people who are leading rugby are not entrepreneurial. They're conservative they don't want to be accountable for I took this risk and it, uh, you know, it didn't happen because you know, uh, that the the wrong, you know, the guys that used to pat him on the back may not pat him on the back the next time he goes into that room. You know what I mean? I think we're not thinking entrepreneurially about the opportunities for the game. Um, A game can do anything. Our game is um, international. It's, it's also local. You know, we are, so lucky to have that opportunity and it's about being entrepreneurial in the way we think um, and uh, you know the way we approach uh, even just the simplest of ideas and I know Andrew's trying to be uh, trying to talk about it a few times around um, putting the season you know the international windows all together to create more it's 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 absolute logic uh, but we seem to struggle with it and if you asked anyone, they wouldn't be able to tell you why because it's like turning around a, a, an ocean liner, you know what I mean, and, and making make a decision to say, okay, we'll play the rugby championship in February and March while you're playing the Six Nations, and then we'll play in October and November, and then all that time in the middle, you can play, like that for us here I believe is brilliant because what will happen is rugby will be played, you'll be playing the grand finals of rugby at the same time as you'll be playing the grand finals of AFL and rugby league, which is the big, you know, that September time in, in Australia is when everyone gets, you know, fired up for finals footy, you know, and you can have great competition. You can have strong club competition in different times as well. You can just, just that logic alone. And the lack of entrepreneurship has not even allowed us to get to that point where we can just put the, and, and, you know, I know it's difficult to change. I really do, especially for the North where um, it's very successful, you know, financially successful. But I don't think the North really has to change a whole lot. I think that concept of us playing in February, March sort of internationals and then those internationals in October, November or whenever they are, I don't know, but you pick those windows and everyone plays at the same time. It's It seems pretty simple. But we we, we like... To make it look like it's complicated, it's just a matter of saying this is what we want to do because of X, Y, and Z outcomes. And you have got to sell. You get nothing unless you sell. You know what I mean? We don't. We've got no god given right to be given money because we play rugby union. We've got to sell what we've got and say this is why this game is hot. Check it out. These games are going to be unbelievable. They're going to play do this and sell because that's what that's what people who are hungry do. Here, you look at NRL. The guy came out, the chairman said, we're back May 28, like, ages ago. And everyone told him, you, yeah, no, what are you talking about, blah, blah. They'll be kicking off next Thursday. All going well. And it just comes back to saying, I've got ambition, I'm selling my vision, and I'm going to do it. And that's all we have got to do.
0: I can understand why um, Northern Hemisphere people might say, well, why the hell do we have to play the season through the Southern Hemisphere winter, you know, playing June, July, August—that's our summer months and whatever. Um, I, I, that to me is not about Southern Hemisphere; it's just a meteorological reality that Southern Hemisphere. Okay, yes, Dunedin gets a few cold nights. You've you've been down there. What are you? You've yep. got to find. You know, you've got to be fairly creative to to stay warm on a night like that down in Dunedin. But we don't get those really bleak, bitterly cold like Northern Europe or whatever in the winter. I, I think it is you take out the Christmas. Complication potentially if you if you're playing through that season, I don't know what the feedback has been like generally in Europe about those Rugby World Cup warm-up games. Because from the Southern Hemisphere's perspective, we look at Edinburgh in blazing sunshine and and a great crowd and and good footy. You know the days of playing in the middle of winter so that, you know, the big Ford packs can roam around these muddy pitches. They're gone. All the pitches are beautiful, as, as you know now. I mean, I never got dirty for, for starters, but I certainly wouldn't these days playing on the pitch. So that, that argument's sort of taken out a little bit. And I think you can still have – that's why rules are important to let the big guys still have their roles in the game. You don't want everybody sort of looking the same shape and, and running around on fast tracks just because of that. So you need to have a role for the big guys. But I think playing on, on good tracks makes a lot of sense when the Southern Hemisphere doesn't get quite as cold as, as the Northern Hemisphere. And, you know, if you're looking to expand the game and have, you know, the likes of Russia have obviously played in a few World Cups. Scandinavia, I mean, their build is ideal for rugby, you would have thought. Um, it, you know, playing throughout the summer, I would have thought, brings more of those Northern Hemisphere nations into our sport. Uh, For for me, there was one of the issues that happened. The first game that was cancelled
2: because of coronavirus, to try and find a window to put it back in, there was maybe one weekend in the whole year in 2020. That's how jam-packed the season is because they still thought there was going to be a summer tour and they also then thought that the guys need a few weeks off and then they get back into it. So you're pretty much talking going up to a World Cup Uh, On the back of a Lions tour, a Northern Hemisphere player could play for 48 weeks of the year. That is not sustainable, irrespective of financials or anything else that are within it. It's a tough game. If you look at NFL, the regular season is maybe 16 games with a few more at the end of it. And I know that's a different game, but there are elements of that that are important. But I don't think you'd find any consensus by everybody, because I think we maybe have a couple of too many tournaments or those tournaments are too big because they have to justify the television monies or they have to justify having larger squads. Um, so the idea in many respects is we've gone so big because it's been a bit fragmented. And I would agree with, with you, Michael, the idea of having an entrepreneurial view into the game, it isn't just to have an entrepreneurial view on one tiny part of it. It has to look at the whole thing. But we can't look at the whole thing if everybody keeps what they already have.
3: And I think um, it's, this is where the selling comes in. So immediately uh, I go, okay, well, you can ask the Europeans to play in the summer. Everyone goes on their holidays. The TV broadcaster does not want that. Um, doesn't, you know, probably doesn't think that that's the right place to be playing it, uh, to, be, to be playing it because of the ratings and the advertising money, et cetera, et cetera. But that's where the sell comes in. The, the overall sell about what the game can give you as an, as a whole not just that more is more, more equals more because it's proven here that more does not equal more. More games, more teams, more does not bring you more success from a television um, rating point of view or from a crowd rating point of view. It's about how the quality of what you do. So if you're going to have 10 home games, you want them home away, home away, home away, home. So you've got some continuity. Or, um, yes, in the t- if we play in this period, um, it may not be the perfect time, but then you're going to get this in that period, which is going to sell better for you. Or a global wage. And that's where selling comes in. And, and that's when you're not entrepreneurial, when you're more, uh, uh, how do I say it, uh, uh, institutional, like uh I'd say rugby is at the administrative level, then that's what you get. We'll, we'll play more and we'll get more money. But eventually, quality drops. People don't know where to watch. Uh, what, what's this comp here? Who, who are these guys? What's, what's this? We get stuck between some form of development and competition and it's, it loses meaning. And that's what people want to watch and be a part of is meaningful competitions.
1: Andrew, could I just sum up? You were saying a calendar season, so the 2021 season would start for all the franchises at the same time uh, around the world, the various leagues, whatever, whatever conference they're in, would start in January and say finish in September. And in the midst of that, you'd have a six-week break for an international window where the Six Nations will be played and rugby championship will be played. And there might be a tour at the end of that year or somewhere else along in, in between. And the next season starts the following year. Is that
0: like yeah, well, overhead I mean, that's ab- No, 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 absolutely. However, it's carved up, I just think the sport needs a global season for, for it to flourish at the developing nations, for it to flourish at the levels under, um, in every nation, under the, the, the professional competitions and, and whatnot, and for the ability to, to, to schedule um, what we like about rugby, to, to have, the, have tours having a place. Um, you know, it might be that we have to really work on a. You know, the Lions has developed now into an every four years, which it has been probably for, I guess, 32, maybe 36 years. That it's every four years. Didn't it used to be exactly every four years, did it? Um, in fact, they didn't even probably used to tour Australia. But anyway, that's evolved to that. And I think there's no reason why we can't put in a. You know, look, here's a here's a 20 year structure. Here, are who's touring when? Maybe 12 years. Here's who? Who's touring when? But I think that the parties need to come with a little bit of concession. Um, and from our perspective in New Zealand look we've always said the All Blacks need to play in New Zealand to be eligible for selection and that's to counter you know the the potential to lose them all and they all go and play you know where our people can't see them easily without getting up at 2 or 3 in the morning or getting Mm -hmm. home at 2 or 3 in the morning Um, we've always said we'll only select them from in New Zealand I think as the development of the game goes and we push into Asia into big economies even if we get a small slice of that I think New Zealand says well okay we're happy to accept selecting All Blacks so long as they're playing in our time zone. And so they can take their IP into new franchises, whether it's in Kuala Lumpur or or Tokyo or Singapore or Hong Kong or wherever. Um, And that's a way New Zealand can concede and say, look, this is for the the development of the global game. So I think everybody needs to come in saying, okay, we might all have to give a little bit here, but at least being prepared to listen to other people's perspectives. I, I don't think that happens a lot.
1: And South Africa as part of the European bloc, essentially, where, you know, again, everybody can watch it here or in South Africa, it's no problems.
0: Yeah, and you might devise a playoff system, potentially. I mean, you might end up with something like six 12-team competitions, conferences throughout the world. You know, if we can get 72, you know, if you only start with five 12-team competitions, but that has the potential to expand. So, I don't know. I mean, however it's it's carved up, I just believe, firstly, that New Zealand and Australian teams Um, underneath the the international teams need to be playing in a time zone, uh, their own time zone. Um, I think to develop the game in the States, there needs to be a a conference supported, well and truly supported over there. They've tried several times to get it off the ground. Looks like one has really caught on now. They've got sort of, I think, 14 kind of professional clubs in the United States. Um, So that needs to be supported as well. But I, I just go back to my fundamental point, the sport to grow needs to have a global season.
1: Yeah, Keith, that all makes sense to kind of bring this back around. Like, it's the it's the old farts to uh, coin Will Carling's phrase in European rugby that might prevent the global season ultimately from happening.
2: Yeah, I don't know that it has to be. Um, it, it, it's it's funny. I it, I know an awful lot of the old farts. Um, I would have said that a lot of them started in the amateur days. A lot of them were there for. The right reason. Some of them are still there for the right reason. Um, I do think it is a it's a it's a very slow moving ship. I think um, you called it a superliner or a super tanker earlier on, Michael. I do think there is a there is a possibility for change because the truth of it is, there's no point if Ireland come out of uh, COVID, they're still going to struggle very heavily because there's a huge impact on on finances. But if Ireland come out in a strong position in a couple of years' time, and none of the other countries do, that's of no value or benefit either. Um, Ireland are not a powerhouse. The powerhouses are France and England, Um, but they are the most fractious. So that's where the issue actually comes with it. Uh, And the one point we haven't actually talked about is if the game does have to shrink a little bit to be able to be viable and sustainable, is that going to have uh, an impact on players' salaries? And will there have to be a reduction that's happening in across and right there, or is it just going to be smaller squads? So there are an awful lot of moving parts. But I, I like I would say that there is there is some movement um, you know, for the people that that I that I consistently speak to, because we've been at this now for a little while, but uh, we can't have an argument all the time. I played the Premiership when the game, as soon as the game went professional, and every year there was a potential of a strike and a fight and an argument, and because there was a huge amount of vine, because we're still
0: an incredibly small and young professional sport. Was and, that just at home Woody, before you went out to train first thing in the morning? That,
2: that was absolutely
0: for certain, yeah. and.
2: Uh, uh, well, you were there afterwards, actually. You were, I, th- thankfully, we didn't cross over. We could have been dangerous together at Queen's. But, um, but there is the sense that, uh, that the game still isn't right. So the representative route where the unions own or have a controlling stake in the provinces is considered to be a very good model. And it is a good model. Um, uh, but it isn't necessarily, it isn't the only model. And it doesn't have to be the right model but all the models need to be able to work together. And at the moment there, I don't know whether it's envy or protecting your own nest or whatever it is that's happening. But I don't think there's any level of consensus because nobody wants to give any ground on what they actually presently own. And uh, for the game to be, I would say seriously sustainable, it can't have clubs paying huge salaries to extract players from other places, it can for a couple, and it should always have a few that are in there because you want to have the best players playing wherever you can, but they can't be doing it at that's totally knocking a Southern Hemisphere team um, and uh, taking away whatever uh, assets that they have. So it's trying to get the balance within all that, um, and nobody's come up with any good solution for it. So any conversation that's happened with World Rugby has never found any level of consensus. they only got excited when they saw the size of the the economic pie. Whereas we're saying we actually want the game to be a fully sustainable game so we can have meaningful rivalries and, uh, you know, things that you actually want people to get up and watch. You know, you want people to go and see, and you want to see the community game be heavily supported because we may get the professional game right but unless the structures are put in to make certain that it's going to be right in 20 years' time because of the kids who are watching it, well, then that would be, a, that would be a, false, a false gift for us, I think.
1: 100%. Lads, you've been great with your time. Andrew Martins, Michael Checker, thanks a million for joining us on episode three of Keith Wood's State of the Union. We've really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did as well.
0: OTV's State of the Union. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.